Revivify, design and building pros podcast. Hi, this is Grace Mace. We're very fortunate to have Catherine Truman of Catherine Truman Architects. She is the CEO and founder of Catherine Truman Architects. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, good to talk with you. Well, I know Catherine for 20 plus years. And to be honest, I've always, my, this, when we were in graduate school, I always admire her. I have tremendous respect for you. One is you just, you're a phenomenal designer. You have such a good sense of design and also engage on what the problem you're trying to solve and bring the human side of design. And not only is visually, aesthetically beautiful, but it's also very functional. And you have started your company a few years ago. And I'm really excited to get to talk with you because as a woman leader in this dynamic environment, there's got to be interesting stories behind your career. So share with us, how did you guys start it? So I kind of came to architecture through a bit of a, it wasn't super meandering, but it definitely wasn't as linear as a lot of other people. I kind of started out thinking I might do math and physics and that ended up in architectural history and kind of I, I took a small detour into architectural history and theory, realized academia wasn't my thing, worked in New York City for a couple of years and finally ended up realizing that what all of those things were converging on doing was that I really, you know, I'd really found this love of architecture and architectural history when I was in school, but I couldn't really quite figure out how to act on that <laughs> like, because I didn't know how to draw. Like I had taken a bunch of drawing classes and I was always horrible. You know, there's always that thing, oh, you're supposed to be good at math. And, you know, oh, when people say, oh, I always wanted to be an architect, but I couldn't draw and I wasn't really good at math. And I'm always like, that's nothing to do with anything I do. But I kind of believed that at the time. And I couldn't, I, I was horrible at drawing. So I kind of never thought I could actually be an architect. So, you know, having done all these other kind of random, like architecture adjacent things, decided that, okay, I'm going to give myself one more try at this. And I was like, I'm going to go to, I was living in New York. So I was like, I'm going to take a sketch pad and a bunch of pencils and I'm going to go to the Metropolitan Museum and I'm going to sit down in front of something and I'm going to draw. And if I can't teach myself how to draw, then I'm going to go to business school. So I had already taken the GMATs or whatever it was for that. And so I went up there, I spent an afternoon and I like sat in front of this Greek sculpture and I figured out how to draw. And I like could draw his, the, the proportions of ankles to knees was a little bit short in the end of it all, but it worked. At that point I was like, okay, right. I can go to architecture school. And that was sort of what I always you know, like sometimes when you finally realize like what you're supposed to be doing, you're like, oh, okay. It just feels like it's like a big exhale and you're like, okay, that right. Well, that's the right thing to do. So ended up finally at 26 applying to architecture school and going to Yale, right? Met you a couple of years later. So that was kind of the, the start as a background. As far as where I am now, I started this firm six and a half years ago, which I have a lot of trouble believing it was six and a half years ago. It feels like way less time in some ways and way more in other ways. And I started this, I had been working for a firm in Boston, Anne Beha Architects. And Anne was, she started her firm, I can't, sometime back in the 80s, I think it was, as a sole practitioner, female-owned architecture firm, like one of the few around. Um, you know, there are other women that were partnered up with people, but she was like doing it solo. And she was incredibly well-respected in the industry from like the get-go. And so I started, I came here in 1999 to work for her. Um, and it was, you know, I figured I'd do it for three or four or five years and then figure out what to do next. And of course, 15 years later, I was still there. And so when it was time to move on, she was incredibly supportive of me and has been a real like champion and mentor for me and been very helpful in it. And so when I finally said to her after 15 years, I think it's time for me to do my own thing. She was like, great, you're making the right decision. And support you every step of the way and 
I'll help you get started and what can I do to help? So it's been amazing. But wow. yeah, six and a half years ago. That's impressive. Like, so you say you realize that it's time to move on. What was that, that moment? What was it that kind of tingling feeling say, yeah, Catherine, I think you're ready. Let's do it. <sighs> Because, I mean, 15 um, years working for a firm is very comfortable. And it sounds like Anne's a fantastic mentor. It's hard to walk away from something like with that kind of setup. Yeah. I would think it's a couple of years, honestly, of figuring out what I was going to do. And I kind of joke that I knew, I knew something had to change. And I had, like, this kind of metaphorical list of options out there. And I ended up starting my own firm when I kind of, jokingly say is I had crossed everything else off the list and this was the only thing left was start your own firm but I knew something had to change I had gone from very junior like very 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 junior person there to very senior but I was a senior associate I was not a principal and what became clear is that there wasn't a principal track available for me at that point there was a plan in place it did not involve me part of that was I think I had also after being there for about three years, I had, the firm is not, does not do residential work. The firm does large, large scale, important cultural and institutional work. So they do a lot of work with the big universities, embassies, and, you know, the Smithsonian Museum, like they're working for these kinds of institutions, but somehow I had ended up starting to do these residential projects, which were large scale and really interesting, but kind of like going out like in a different direction. So I wasn't really following that path either. So there wasn't, that was kind of clear that there wasn't really a principal track there for me. I'm not sure even if there had been, it would have been the right step for me because having started so young, there was, I'm not going to say that it was like a mother-daughter relationship because that's a little bit too, like there's, there's too much baggage with that associated, but there was, at a certain point, you're never going to be equal mm-hmm. with somebody that you started that junior from there, you know, and, and I would want to have been in a position where I would have felt more like an equal and less like constantly a right. protege. So I kind of knew that even if that had been available, it wouldn't have been what I would have really wanted to do. So I thought about, you know, well, I should go off with, you know, do something with somebody else. Is there another firm I should join? I thought pretty seriously about just like leaving and go, you know, leaving the industry and going into some other kind of, you know, architecture adjacent profession. And I spent a couple of years probably talking to, you know, talking to other people about either joining their firms or partnering up with people, but it was never like the right fit. It's like trying to dating to find a husband versus right. dating just for the sake of dating. Ultimately just decided, you know, I think this is just, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to wait to find somebody. I'm not going to wait. If I go to another firm, even if it's one where there's like a partner track for, you know, you're a couple years into it and still you're going in with somebody else who's already the established, like you're still always going in, not, fully equal, really. So the only way to kind of do that was really just like, well, I guess then I just started my own myself. Plus I was also looking at kind of forward thinking about time. I had been, there were a lot of other things that were involved with this too, which was, I felt, anybody who lived through 2008, (laughs) you know, 2008, that was nothing compared to what we're doing now. Oh, that was just a dry run. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you thought 2008 was bad. Wait till you tell your children about this one. Um, but the 2008 had really had an impact on me in okay. terms of uh, what I saw happening to the profession and, and to kind of analyze what had happened to architects, architects in general. And that I was lucky enough to keep my job, but 
that was, you know, rare. There were a lot of people who didn't keep their jobs and felt that part of it was because I was still young and nimble in quotes to still know how to, you know, work all the computer programs and still be able to draft and still, but I was client facing. I had my own clients. I was still bringing in money. So I was kind of perfectly positioned, but saw a lot of people at more senior levels who weren't like on the boards, as they say, who were doing business development or whatever, who weren't, they, they weren't able to stay where they were because they weren't, you know, really literally in the trenches. So I sort of felt that I had to position myself. I was 40 odd years old at the time that I wanted to position myself so that I would have more control over weathering the next crisis. And Mm -hmm. here we are. And I was, so I was, you know, trying to figure out how to, how I should position myself for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. That was part of it. And knowing that if I sort of became a senior level cog in a larger wheel, I may not survive, survive the next go around of recessions. So here we are. And I also knew that I was, I think when I left, I'm 52 now. And so I left, whatever the math was, that 46, I guess, because I sort of felt like if I got too close to 50, it was going to be too late to do it. And it's not that it's too late that you can't. It's just that the time frame on the endeavor becomes less realistic. Like it takes from from everything I had heard at the time, like the time frame to build a firm, it's not something you can just like launch and it's instantly successful. Like you have to get projects, you have to do projects, you have to publish projects, you have to, you know, that if you, if you start looking at the time horizon, you know, at 50, that was, you don't have as long a time horizon to do stuff. So I was sort of like, I'll just go now. I'll just jump. Yeah. I mean, clearly you made the right decision. Just looking at all of this magazine cover, your projects and competition highlights, you have done a phenomenal job for your for you establishing yourself, establishing your firm. And I always knew, pardon me, I always knew you would be that person. You would be the leader able to sort and, and just thrive in these kind of situations and find a way to just shine. And you have. And seeing over and over, you just never seem to let things to get you down. You always find a way to say, all right, here's the opportunity. What can I do to more? And the fact that you're being nimble and able to figure out, like very strategic of here's my runway. What can I do now to build this up and make a quick decision? And I think that's all the quality of good leaders and giving where we are right now. <laughs> I know. This conversation would have been so different a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> that might be. Well, what happened a month ago? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Like last month in a different world? Absolutely. It was definitely a different world last month, even just weeks ago. But where yeah. you are, you seem very calm. You seem to very, well, one, you always seem composed and you're able to figure out ways to be able to figure things out, even with the storm, the rain outside. But just looking at you, you still be able to say, I got this. And you're the badass, oh, always flatter. crank things out. <laughs> like, I'm serious. I always admire you. And I now watching you career, your career and now establishing your own firm. And coming out and leading this effort and seeing your project over and over from different publications just plaster your work. And they're just beautiful, just down, stunning work. The detail is so exquisite. And so given where you are, as you talk about how, what you experienced, the, the challenge or the struggle that you went through in your head in your 46 and deciding what to do, what's your next move, what, how to navigate through that, your career path, and now being the leader, being the owner, having a staff, 
and you probably have staff of women. How do you mentor them? How do you work with them to engage them, help them to navigate through their career path? Okay, that's a lot. It's a kind of complicated question because it's really about a whole bunch of different individuals that I work with. And so sometimes I think the only thing I can really do to mentor is just like continue to show up and, and just be like, well, I'm doing this so somebody else can do it. I don't really, I mean, I'm not doing anything that isn't being done by other people. So I don't feel like I'm like, I'm not the first woman to own a small firm. It's like where, you know, we may not be a dime a dozen, but I'm not like, it's not like I'm a, even though I'm female astronaut, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think sometimes it's just like, you know, 90% of success is just showing up. It's just, I just keep showing up and hopefully that's good. I think on a more specific level, I don't know. I think it's very individual. Like I'm trying to come up with some general comment about mentoring people. And I'm like, well, wow, with, you know, this person, it was X. And with that person, it was Y. And with this person, it didn't work at all. And like that relationship didn't go anywhere. And they ended up, you know, like we, they couldn't, we just couldn't make that work relationship work. So I think, in, I think it's also a lot about teaching people. Like I try when I'm sitting down with, with staff to first of all, ask them like, okay, tell me if you know this already. But also tell me, like, if you don't, like, if I ask you, what is a face frame cabinet versus a full overlay cabinet? Do you know what I'm talking about? And if they say yes, mm-hmm. and then I often will say, well, then sketch it for me. And mm-hmm. that's when you realize they don't. Right. And I try and, t- like, try and teach them so that they can be productive. I think probably the only time I actually really ever felt like I did any actual, like, mentoring. <laughs> I had one woman who was working with me. and. She was great, and I thought that she was she was actually trained as an interior designer, and she was doing a lot of millwork and shop drawings and stuff with me. And then we had then that project finished, and then I put her onto another project where I was asking her to like create millwork drawings, and she was really struggling. And I was under a lot of stress about a whole bunch of other stuff, and I was kind of not being I didn't spend as much time with her trying to like get through all these details. So she was getting frustrated, and I was getting frustrated. And then one day she sent me this email, and she said, "I just think I'm gonna." leave. I don't really think this, you know, is working out the way I thought it was going to work out. And I kind of was like, all right, wait, hang on. Before you do that, let's talk. And sat down with her and was like, what's going on? Like, and we had this great heart to heart where she said, I just don't feel like I'm doing a very good job. And I was like, well, okay, let's talk about why you feel that. And like, why do we, how do we solve this problem? And I had I had to admit like culpability and the fact that she felt like she wasn't doing a good job because I wasn't spending the time with her to really make sure that she understood what I was asking her to do. And she didn't and she just, you know, she continued to feel frustrated. But in admitting that I was doing it wrong, that I wasn't I wasn't working with her, she was getting frustrated and she ended up wanting to leave. Right. She ended up, I said, Well, okay, so let's talk about what is it how do we make this work better for you? And so we changed around the job description that she was doing and she's still here. I mean, she's great. She's like, I love her. She's fantastic. But it really took like, it took a real heart to heart. And I don't know what it was because I've had, you know, there've been other people where I haven't bothered to go after them and say like, well, why? And with her, I was just like, there's, you know, things have been so good for a while and then they went wrong. And so I don't know that it's a very good answer to this question. No, I think it is because um, I think part of it, you were vulnerable. You knew there would be, answers that you may not be happy with it too but you were vulnerable enough to let her work through with you and figure out ways you also need to adjust 
your way of working together with her and your willingness to say, all right, I want to figure out how to make it work. And for her to be vulnerable too, she could easily say, no, you know what, it's done. But it's that kind of partnership. And it takes one, the leader, to say what's going on and willing to say, let's talk about why is it not working? Asking those hard questions to be able to come to work through those emotional state. Most people on the professional front, we always try. I mean, I think as women, we try to, in the professional, we try to have that facade and say, we got this. This is A, B, and C, very objective. But reality is when we work together as human to human, there's that emotional touch that sometimes we don't think hard, but those are the moments can make a huge impact. Understand connecting with each other at an emotional level and for her to recognize what things that she could have done differently and what, and also suggesting things for you to do differently and together come to a solution where you're both happy and she's happy. She's still with you. And I think that's yeah, what leaders it's are. It's totally true. Yeah. I mean, it, cause it worked out. I'm really glad I went that I said to her, wait, hang on before you do that. Like you're, if that's what you feel is the right move, then I respect that. But I think, you know, let's talk about it first. And right. that worked, you know, it worked well and, and it was great. I have to admit, I think I've tried that in the past with people and it hasn't taken. I think one of the things I feel like good about with that particular situation was making this mistake, we figured out where the problem was, changed the job description and it was fine. Yeah. Whereas that every other time I've tried to solve a problem where somebody's work wasn't, you know, improving, I've never been able to make that work before. Maybe that's the reason I feel like that was a good like mentor situation where I figured out how to help somebody advance and advance their skill set and bring the Um, best out of that person. The hmm. reason why I'm asking you is my, I personally experienced this my first year with you. My first, I was, when I was a first year, you were a third year student. And I remember after my first, well, the day before my first project, you came swing by my desk and asked how I was doing. You didn't have to, to me, you were like, this is Catherine Truman, right? <laughs> and I was this lonely first year student, didn't just my first project. And I think I'm doing a good job. And I think I'm trying to get myself psyched up and finish up. And you came talk to me like two nights before the, fir- the, the first crick. And then you gave me some feedback. I thought it was really not, I mean, it was really one as generous of you to be there for me. I had no clue. And then the night before, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm done. I need to go home. You, I was ready to pack up. And you came to me and say, you need to stay here, be there for your first year, for other students. And that would, that really made an impact on me. That made my impact on my I told you not to go home? Yeah, you told me not to go home. And there was the other reason, because with initiation oh. that night, right? Oh, that's so not that. I must have been on slow sleep deprived at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, you made an impact on me. And- I'm glad you told me that because I would have missed out my first year initiation. You were kind enough to let me know that, but you didn't tell me it. You just kind of lead me to that decision and making suggestions for me to have that experience for me to come to that path. And so that's the reason why I ask you about to me and you're always a phenomenal leader just from that level of engagement with you and throughout the rest of the year. I, I, like I said, I admire you. Just everything you do, you're very methodical. You're very personal. You think about things about how it's impacting the other person. Reality is, would it benefit you to come talk to me? Absolutely not. I was a first year student. You were third. You're far advanced than I was, but you did it anyway. And so that to me, oftentimes we forget as a woman, you you possess that kind of intel, the, the, the emotional intelligence, EQ, 
to recognize that and to be able to extend your hand even though you didn't have to. And to be emotionally connecting helped me to navigate through that first year, especially the first few weeks of my this college, graduate school year, which can be confusing, can oh. be overwhelming, right? <laughs> overwhelming. It absolutely was overwhelming for me. And totally having that experience really made a big difference for the rest of remaining two, uh, remaining three years. So oh, I, don't, I don't remember that. Well, <laughs> regardless, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for being there for me and help me to go through that. And forever, I always think of you as you're just a great leader. And that's when I think about leaders, I think about you, what things you do and how you make me feel. And that was what made a big difference. So you're making me blush over here. I would say that one other thing that I try and do with people here is partly because it's a small studio and partly because this was a bit of influence of Anne was um, I try to really open when I screw up and I just try and be generally pretty open about stuff in general, whether or not it's like managerial or financial or whatever is like when we got basically got fired from a job when, you know, the husband had hired me and the wife and I, I'd never met the wife and we had a couple meetings and then she got this interior designer on board and then they decided they didn't want me. And so I was politely asked to leave the job was, you know, kind of mortifying and, and, you know, embarrassing. I don't think it's the first time that's ever happened to an architect. It's certainly not the last time. And from what I hear through the grapevine, I'm not missing out on anything, (laughs) but you know, when that happened, that's kind of mortifying, but I had to be really upfront with my staff and be like, well, so that job isn't going to happen anymore. And, you know, here's why. And it's kind of embarrassing to be like, we were basically, I mean, we weren't fired for cause or anything. We were just asked not to work. So, you know, open with them about the downside of this stuff too. I'm open about when I like make mistakes. So we, I had a little project that I kind of was rushing through for a long time client. We were super busy and I just kind of rushed through doing it and the shop drawings came in and I missed something and they built this piece of cabinetry and there was the dimension was wrong and, you know, owner was pissed and I had to, they basically own up to the fact that I had rushed through this thing and made this stupid mistake and, you know, now it's going to cost $10,000 to fix this piece of cabinetry. And I think it's important that they also see when I screw up because one of the things that I really... I tell everybody that works for me, like everybody makes mistakes. I make mistakes. I want you to know I make mistakes. But what I try not to do is make the same mistake twice. Right. I am more than happy to explain why something is wrong and teach you what's the problem. But and maybe a second time. But if I start seeing the same stupid mistakes over and over again, that's when I really lose it because I don't have the time to sit and do that. So I feel like in order to in order to have any weight and authority to to say no you know you're you're wrong I have to be able to to admit that I am wrong and tell them when that happens so that they can learn from that as well so that they you know that I'm not just coming across as some sort of you know I don't think I'm perfect either yeah that's important because it's showing again back to the showing the vulnerability and also just showing you're human we all make mistakes but to recognize a mistake and learn from it and avoid making the same mistake over again. And they, people you hire are professional and that's what they do. And they're expected to perform at the professional level. And right. So, I think the biggest challenge that I have with that too is that, and I've, I've had this conversation with some employees too, is that I'm not, however, an educational institution. Right. Like I am not in business to teach you stuff. I teach you stuff 
so that you can work for me so that we can run a business, make clients happy and make money. Right. Like, and that's hard to do as an architect. Profit margin is yes, really, really, really small. Yeah, right. But I have found that a lot of younger people, they don't understand that, which I don't think is necessarily their fault as individuals. It's probably that they're young and partly that the world is, I don't know, I'm not going to go down that path, but that I think a lot of people don't understand the nature of what the learning process means in an architecture firm, especially a small one. Just like every line means something and every line has a financial implication. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but like every line means something to a builder and every line kind of has a financial implication. And I'm happy to teach you about this stuff, but basically I teach you so that you can learn and that we can advance the cause of this endeavor together, which is ultimately attempting to make profit. It's not, you know, I do not start this firm so that I can lose money teaching people endlessly over and over again. Right. You have to understand the way that the the business end of this works, which is like there's certain things that I can afford to have people learn, even if it's close to your level, because they need to get done and the time value of money for me to do them doesn't make a lot of sense. And they're great ways for people to learn stuff. So you can, you know, do a stair section and figure out, you know, how do you make a stair work? And I know I can whip that out really quickly, but like you've never sat down and looked at the code before. So here, take this and, you know, read the code, understand how to do it. It's going to take you a day. It would take me an hour. That's fine. I get it. But I don't want every time you draw a stair detail for that to have to take a day. I want you to take a day the first time you look at the code, maybe two hours the next time, and then you should be able to do it as fast the time value of money for skill sets is about kind of balancing that through the, through the business. But I do think a lot of people come to small firms and think that they are just, or come to firms in general and just think that whether, you know, if they make the same mistake three times, it doesn't matter because right. why would it matter? And I'm like, it totally yeah. matters because small every firm. hour that, you know, every hour you're working, I'm paying you at this rate, there's overhead, there's, you know, I have all of these other expenses. And even though it seems like I'm billing you out at a much higher rate, you know, all of that is calculated to cover rent and electricity and insurance and taxes and, you know, benefits and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and for photograph photography and advertising and publishing, like there's a, ba- there's a budget here. And it, even though it seems like you, you're like, how can she bill me out at this huge amount of money? And I get paid so little, it should much, make much, much of a difference. It's like, well, it doesn't work that way. You know, there is a carefully calibrated right. set of economics to it. And it doesn't mean that just because you don't think you're getting paid that much or, you know, who does think they're getting paid that much that, that it doesn't cost money to run the office. I don't right. know if that makes sense. Either, it but. does, especially small firm, the margins, it's just very tight. Right. And we work for a large firm's margins. There, there's some buffer. And so these kind of incidents, mistake happens is much more costly, much more visible. Right. And yeah. so, and just because, and also the the manpower, the hands on deck, they're just not as, you can't just throw another junior person to whip something else. Like, no, we have to get things done. And we have allocated resources to commit to all these projects. There's just the error, the margin of error is really little. Right, exactly. And, and then there's- To make the course correction is a lot. And definitely try and be pretty open about, you know- <laughs> When an invoice comes in for my professional liability insurance and it's like XXX thousands of dollars, and right. you know, how much is rent? It's, you know, blah. And how much is, you know, oh, every photo shoot is, yeah. you know, basically $3,000 for the photographer plus all the lost time that, right. 
you know, me and whoever else from here is going to go to. So like every, basically every photo shoot is like, you know, somewhere between five and $10,000 right. that they understand that all of the, that outlay of costs is wrapped in. It's not like all they do is pay salaries. Even nowadays with the coronavirus crisis, these kind of situations, there's obviously the beginning of the situation where everyone started working from home, getting things set up, communicate through the virtual setup. Again, that there's a cost that people don't think about. Oh man, is there ever a cost? <laughs> this is like, it's much easier to work. Like the thing that's been the biggest challenge right, right. now with this is trying to work with junior staff. Remotely, yep. Senior staff, you can they can work pretty autonomously, and like if you're, I I tend to think of people as like, are they a one hour person, a two hour person, a four hour person, eight hour person? Like, how frequently do you have to check in on them? And if it's the kind of person you have to check with once an hour, once every two hours, you know, or can they go all day when all you need to do at the end of the day is be like, so how far did you get with X? And like, let me take a look at it when you're ready. Like, they're those people, but in there, this whole work working from home thing is totally fine for people like that. It's a much bigger challenge for staff where you have to the way that we're working in the same space where you have to check in more frequently, it's definitely a harder thing to do because you don't realize how frequently it's just, I'll turn around and be like, Hey, can you just quickly show me how far you've gotten on that drawing? Or can you like, what, would you mind grabbing all the samples that we have from that last meeting and putting them all out so we can take a quick look through them or whatever. And without that, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to navigate that. Like, how am I going to work with like, doing interior finishes and helping and, and working with a junior staff on figuring out all the finishes for something when like, they're not here yeah, to look at them with me. You know, it's right. kind of, that's, that's kind of, I don't know how to, I don't know how to navigate that one. But Well, I'm confident you'll figure it out. But yeah, there is also, I mean, the financial cost of this thing is, it's crazy. Yeah. So, so are, are you able to, are there municipals, funds, grants that you guys are able to apply to, or is there any financial supports from the government? Well, I feel like, yes, there, they say there's going to be right now. I feel like I, I told my staff this the other, I don't know, probably I don't remember the last week or the, I don't remember the day of the week it is anymore. I felt like this whole situation was like having a whole second job, just trying to figure out what's going on. And I got, all these emails from different, you know, from my bank, my accountant, I'm on all these different listservs, which I didn't even realize I was on because most of the time I think I just ignore them. Right. And my HR consultant, my past HR consultant, you know, other, I don't know, I have these, this bombardment of information that basically also changes every four hours. Right. And, you know, what's the status of this loan or that grant or this thing? And are you going to qualify for this? And, you know, you get all this information from all these different people and it's 90% of it's the same, but some of it's new and some of it's different and some of it's changing. And so, yeah, like right now I've applied for uh, some small business loan that is, they call it a loan, but they say it's not going to have to be repaid. They're going to call it a grant, but then there's this other thing called payroll protection mm-hmm. that's supposed to have come out today, but as of uh, the start of our call, it hadn't. For me, I happen to have a couple of weird situations that made I probably won't even bother with that one just because I had a pretty large payroll last year. And then I had two people who gave notice at the beginning of the year to do like one was going to move abroad and the other was going to do a career change. 
and I had a project go on hold due to zoning problems. So mm-hmm. I, and that, the person who was staffing that was a 1099. So since January, I basically had three people right. slowly go off of this payroll. Plus I had, I had two extra people last year right. just given the, the workload. And so I don't think I'm going to qualify for that or I don't know. Anyways. So there's supposed to be money out there. There's definitely, there's resources to figure it out too. I mean, there's a small business or small practices network at the BSA, which we had a call the other day, people just trying to sort of all figure out what it is and how to navigate it. I think most of us are more worried in general about not like this week or next week. We're all more worried about six months from now, you know, nine months from now, because for the most part, that call, there were I think there were twenty of us or twenty or twenty five of us on the call, and it ranged from sole practitioners to firms of sort of you know nine, ten, twelve people. Most people were to some degree either completely equally as busy as they've been before, or not a huge amount of difference. But everybody and everybody was more worried about you know when the stuff that when the tasks that I'm doing right now dry up. So I, it'll it be weird either one. I was thinking I'd apply for the money right now is to try and have it Couple so that six I can later. Yeah. keep what I have now and bank it for the future. Uh, well, there's a lot for, as a business owner, there's a lot to think about and having this throw in the middle of mix is we just finished Q1 and now you're moving on Q2 thinking about what's the end of after Q2, the life after this coronavirus situation or crisis. And it's hard to, and at the same time, to contain and figure out what's in your your staff. How do you maintain their morale, their their commitment to finish the project at the highest quality it's ever been, and while maintain this attitude of you know, just keep going, we'll do fine, and the economy we have no control, but deep down you know there's something potentially may happen six months out as the market dynamic changes. And unfortunately, I actually have an awkward situation where I have a couple of the people that I have working for me are on various visas. Mm. And as I discovered this week, you can't put people on H-1B visas on, um, on half the time or cut their salary. Right now, for me, a much bigger problem. Right. Because the, the logical situation right now for me is to basically put people on half-time work um, or reduce their pay. Right. But I can't. So I'm, I'm also sort of confronting this this problem that I either have to keep somebody completely fully billable at their set current salary rate or let them go, which is like not what you want to do. You want to put somebody on, you really want to be able to take somebody and put them on, you know, furlough them, cut their pay so that you can kind of string out the work or at least be able to kind of afford them. And so I'm also kind of right now facing the fact that I may not be able to keep staff because if I can't keep them for like, if I look a month out and I can't see any billable work, yeah. For this particular staff, like I can't just cut, put them on furlough and then bring it back in a month. I have to let them go. Probably should put that on the air until after we discover what happens with that one. Right. But um, yeah, that's an extra big challenge, which is frustrating. Yeah, this uncertainty, trying to tread through this, this, or just like you mentioned, navigate through this kind of uncertainties is challenging without some sort of concrete. You know, at least most of the time, even back in 2008, we kind of can predict because there's some historical patterns that we can kind of project. Here's may happen. And then the economy would then normalize and things will pick up slowly and treading upward. 
But with this, it's such a different sets of attributes that's impacting the impacting an economy. And so there's not a whole lot of things I can throw from the history of, all right, well, this looks like this. So I can plot that dot right there. And then this looks like that. And then now I have two lines. So where do I see the, the, how the line's trending? We don't have those kind of historical data to reference easily. I mean, the earliest yeah. we can reference probably 1918 or something since the... Oh, we had a war. <laughs> we so. had a war, right. And even that, the economy was a lot different than what we are today. I mean, we're yeah. just, the economy going through a shock, really. I'm curious to see how we're going to come out the other side. Different note. Where yeah. come, <laughs> so uh, things that you've seen so far, just looking at trends, n- not so much of the economy, but trends of what people want when they design, when they come to you and say, hey, Catherine, we, here's a Pinterest board that we put together or whatever inspiration board. And have you seen some sort of trends over the last six years you've been with your company? Trends of what people want or trends of what I want to do. Both. Um, Let's start with that. I guess. <laughs> um, some people have pretty clear ideas about what they like, which is great most of the time. Sometimes that just means you end up feeling like you're a drafting service, which mm, isn't that, that much, much fun. fun. Yeah. But I think when people have a general sense of what they like and then they're willing, they, they want to work with an architect to to develop that idea but they're they're not basically looking for us just to draft they don't know how to draft so they need somebody to draft for them that's right. that's less engaging but i don't know it's funny i feel like people seem to have like different i different individual ideas about what works for them and what doesn't but i'd say there's always you know yes i see trends of you know kind of big open spaces and i don't know it's just like but i sometimes also feel like that's just what i gravitate to I don't know if I really have enough data to say that I see trends in, with people that I work with. There's enough differences within them, and we do each project is so different. I think, like when I look at my projects, I can see that there are kind of overarching similarities with certain with things that I've done. Yep. Would I call them trends? Not necessarily. And I don't know that what I, the way that I approach solving the problems that are presented to me is driven by trying to like do something that's like cool and trendy mm-hmm. really. like because I can't say like oh people all want big open kitchens or people all want giant master bedrooms mm-hmm. or they all want small master bedrooms because everybody's like we've got people who've done everything you know yeah. small lots of small spaces or have all one big open thing so like I, I don't see one particular trend about how people want to live I think well, what things that you what? want to engage or encourage your clients to think about? Like sustainable design and energy efficient? Again, I oftentimes work with what they are interested in. Like if we, you know, we've advocated in certain, like we have a project right now where we were advocating really hard for a green roof at the beginning mm-hmm. of the project. It got taken out for budget. And then the owner came back and said, actually, I think it would be kind of cool to have a green roof. We're like, okay, that's great. We'll happily add it back in. Right. We've had it we've had a lot of times where we try and advocate for ideas and then they just get taken out of the budget. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much stuff that's cool gets, you know, interesting to do gets taken out in the budgeting process. Um, And it takes a pretty strong minded owner to say, yes, I'm going to leave the green roof in, even though it's going to be X tens of thousands of dollars to do it, or I'm definitely going to leave in the geothermal because X tens of thousands of dollars. A lot of the time that stuff gets taken out. I sort of, I feel like also that, 
the kind of work we do, since a lot of it's renovations, a lot of it's like a townhouse renovation or condo renovations, or it's an addition to an existing house that we're not necessarily confronting the same kinds of, you know, sustainable stuff that you see when you might be designing completely brand new ground up because we're already like working with existing infrastructure in a condo building. We're already working with the existing heating system. We're already working with, you know, we kind of have to work with what's kind of there oftentimes. And giving Boston with so much history, the buildings are much older than many parts of the country too. Yeah. And we're, we're more likely to face the challenge, which I swear is like every other project. And when somebody tells me exactly how to make this work, it's going to be great. (laughs) Insulating historic masonry walls. And so Three white, old, load-bearing masonry walls nice. that, you know, have been breathing the way they've been breathing for 150 years. And then, you know, you put closed cell spray foam on them, they're going to change the dew point, change the freeze-thaw cycle. And then if you're going to pad them out and put the air gap and then put the insulation outside the area, like, I swear, it's like the same conversation all the time about them. And I've gone to whole seminars where basically all the different building scientists get up and say, well, you have to analyze it on a case-by-case basis. And there isn't really like the magic bullet for how to do an insulated masonry wall. That's the conversation I seem to have a lot more frequently. Like, can we insulate this? And I was like, well, you can, but you're going to have to give up, you know, four or five inches out of your floor space in order to make it work. And so we, I think we face more questions like that. Like, um, how do we deal with the windows and, uh, can we replace single pane windows with, with an insulated pane glass if you're in a historic district, but what's the benefit of doing storms or window restoration? Like, I feel like our, uh, our questions are oftentimes a little, a little less like glamorous right. than putting in, you know, solar panels or geothermal or green roofs. It's fun when we get to do those things, which, which we've done, but I think more frequently we end up bumping up, up, up against, you know, we have single pane glazed windows with storms, ugly aluminum storms on the outside. We're in a historic district, and because of archaic rules for historic districts, they say they have to use a true divided light, which I swear it's some, like every historic district. It's just, they just don't understand what good windows can do now with a simulated right. divided oh, yeah. light. They're still stuck in like 1983 on, you know, what uh, they all think that a simulated divided light is like a stick-on plastic thing and reality check. There's really beautiful simulated divided lights out there, and yet like they mandate that you can't use them. It's so frustrating. We go through this win- the window conversation, the endless window conversation, and the endless masonry conversation. Wow. Well, but, to me, it's interesting because those are not the type of problems that we learn about or figure it out. And most of the buildings here in California is much younger than what you see in Boston. So yeah. this is really interesting. Yeah, we had a similar thing with an old farmhouse where they wanted to make it. Um, it was actually really interesting. It's a net zero energy project, and it has solar panels and like, hyper-insulated walls and triple-glazed windows, but the original part of the house was like the 1680 old farmhouse. And so it had skinny little walls, like plank walls, and, and tim- it was, you know frame with plank siding. Um, so there wasn't any place to put all this insulation. And it had all this like architectural detail on the outside where, you know, sort of steps and things that you'd see in an old farmhouse. And and we couldn't lose the the timbers on the inside, and yet we needed. And the outside had to. If you just sort of like blew it up and offset it by like the twelve inches it needed, then it would look completely different. So we had to, in some places, go outside, in some places, go inside, readjust eave lines, and like to just to insulate that house was this incredibly complicated puzzle of how do you, how do you make something that much bigger and that much thicker, and yet not change the way that say the windows look in the wall? Because if you put the windows in a different relationship to the plane of the wall that changes the way the old house looks. Right. Anyway. Extraordinary fascinating. This is, this is something I, I find it interesting because 
when you think about just changing dynamic things, a lot of things that people don't think about. It's like, well, just, I want to insulate the, the, these kind of masonry walls, but there's all these implications and has double effects. How does it impact the rest of other things? By moving an inch there, then it's going to be what's going to happen on the other side. So being the architect, trying to balance the aesthetics with functionality, with budget, and with the reality. It's all a little Rubik's Cube. It's all I do is I like, solve little problems all day long. I guess so, it's yeah. So it's what would you advise problems. someone who's brand new or coming into this profession and trying to decide, well, should even just what you went through six years ago, should I start my own firm? What type of advice would you give to someone who's new coming in? Thinking about that point. Well, it really depends on where they are in their career. I mean, I've had people say, you know, they're two or three years out of school and they want to start their own firm. And I'm like, well, let's figure let's teach you how to build something first. Yeah. And one of the things that I find to be the most, one of the most valuable things I learned was like how to build, like, literally going out and physically building stuff. I mean, we had the building project at Yale, which was great. But honestly, it was like renovating my own apartment with my, at that point, boyfriend, who best thing he was good for was teaching me how to do construction. But like building cabinetry and like doing construction and Mm -hmm. understanding a, like how difficult it is, how hard it is. So they have respect for the guys in the field, but also understanding like how the pieces go together. And I think a lot of times... Like, the shit hits the fan in this industry on a construction site, right? Yep. Like, that's where, if you don't know what's going on, that's where you're going to bump into problems. It's really easy to draw pretty pictures. Yep. It's, like, it's super easy to draw pretty pictures. It's super easy to, like, figure out how to put some stuff on paper. Um, a lot harder to figure out how it goes together. Yeah, yeah. And I think that if I had started earlier, I would have... Well, there's a lot of things, but one of the things I wouldn't have known as much about how to build. Mm. And I also know very well what I don't know how to build. Like I'm, I'm really good at interior detailing, detail my where I build work in my sleep and everything, but I'm not as good at envelope detailing. Mm. So I know where my weak points are because I haven't done as much of that. So I know where to augment. I know exactly in any given project where I need to have somebody with a different skill set, and I know exactly who all those people are mm-hmm. and I know how I need to use them. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Right. Or people who can complement those skills. Yeah. But that's, I think, one of the most important things you have to know if you're going to do this because you get in so much trouble if you don't really know what you're doing and you're dealing with construction. There's just so much at stake when it comes to, you know, the money end of it. Right. And like someone, a builder that I'm working with, told me uh, over lunch a couple, I don't like a year or two ago that, he likes to tell clients that, you know, you can either spend a dollar to change the design on paper in black and white, or you can spend a hundred dollars to change it in rough framing, or you can spend a thousand dollars to change it after finishes are up. And which I think is a pretty, that's you a know, good visual. He's, what yep. he's trying to get people to do is like work it out on paper, paper. first. People yep. don't like think that your builder is going to work it out in the field because your builder's not going to work that out right. in the field. Like they can work out some stuff in the field, but they're not going to work out you know, they're not going to take something from this preliminary design and be able to make all the details work. You have to have to have to spend that time up front. But I think what's really important is understanding that, like every, what I said, I think earlier, and what I tell a lot of the people that I work with is that, like, every line means something. Right. And when you draw something, if you don't know what that line means, somebody's going to think it means something. Right. And either, either you're not going to get what you think you're going to get, or, you know, a builder's going to look at it and be like, this person doesn't know what that they're doing. Right. And in order, I think, 
from my my experience, what helps make you successful is fully understanding exactly what it is and how you're going to build it and not just making pretty pictures. And so that's like, because I, I was talking to somebody who was pretty freshly out of school who wanted to, was, you know, like wanted to start their own firm one day. And I was like, well, teach you how to build something first. That's so. really sage advice because if, oftentimes we hear this from the field that contractors like, well, this designer or architect can't design and they don't know what they're doing. And as a result, it really reflects poorly from the clients. Yes, the exactly. And so like are, you go to a client and if you end up designing a cabinet that doesn't have enough space for their dishes, right. like that's a problem. That's not good. And so you, you have to work on understanding that what everything is in terms of its its size, its dimension, and how things go together. And yeah, it's really important to know the meaning of everything you're drawing and whether or not it's going to work. And that I think that's the biggest challenge we face as architects is that, you know, you, you kind of, you go into the field and, and if your drawings are unclear or, clear, or it's clear you don't know what you're doing, the builders know immediately. Yeah. But one of the things that one place I learned the most was actually on construction sites. And I was really lucky. Like my first real project when I was at Ann's office was this amazing historic home in Beacon Hill. And due to a whole series of weird chance, luck chance things, I took that project and just, it became the most amazing project I've ever done. I loved it. Huge renovation, restoration project. And I was kind of let to run loose with it. I didn't have any oversight in the office. I just kind of took the ball. Like I basically took the, rolled by the horns and just ran with it Mm -hmm. and like didn't even know what I was doing I just ran with it and um, probably the best way I learned stuff was if I didn't know what I was doing I owned up to it to the guy like the guys in the field I would be like I don't know I don't know how to do that can you explain it to me rather Mm -hmm. than try and cover up put on on air yeah um and there was like I had drawn this I'm sure it was an absolute mess of like some sort of casework thing that was supposed to be like a chair rail like panels and a baseboard and it was it was obviously completely a mess because the builder who I still am in touch with was really nice we're on the job sitting he's like so what exactly do you want here and I've kind of looked at him and like this just totally stare and like I don't know I'm like terrified and he t- picks up a bunch of pieces of wood on the job site which is big up like one buys and some like profile moldings and stuff and he's like so okay if you do this and you do this and he starts taking these pieces of wood and he starts putting them together and starts to kind of like show me what these, how these pieces go together. And he's like, so what you've drawn here would be X, but what you've drawn over here would be Y. So which way do you want it? And he Mm -hmm. wasn't critiquing me. He wasn't telling me you don't know what you're doing. He was teaching me, which is one of the reasons I feel like teaching people like what every line means is really important because that's what he did with me. He sat there and he showed me how every line that you're drawing means something to right. the guys in the field so after that i just felt like i can learn all this stuff from these guys in the field like they're the ones that can really help me become a better architect yeah. and explain things about why stuff has to happen some way or why stuff doesn't and i found in that job that having that dialogue with the builders made them trust me so that when i said no it has to be this way like this is really important because the end result has to look like this they respected where I was coming from with that because I respected all of their skills and would say, well, I don't know. I don't know how to solve that problem. What would you do right. to learn from them as well? It's spending That's, time on a building site is like the best thing you could do. Yeah, I think that I did the same. I When my 
first job when I worked at Berkeley. That was the advice I got from my, my construction teacher, professor. And I was young out of school and I did some drawing at best. And I didn't have a whole lot of construction experience. We built a homeless shelter with 20 bucks and that was back in my building experience. And, and for a project manager at that time was my title. I was supposed to deciding on some, many of those decisions for the university. And I really was not, I don't think I was equipped to do so, but the best advice she ever um, shared with me was just ask. If you don't know, just ask. Yeah, that was the best advice. Totally the best advice. Just ask. Right, and um, I didn't try to show proof anybody. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have, I have nothing to prove in the first place, and I didn't need to cover up anything. I truly didn't know, and I learned. That was the first two years. I learned so much on the field, talking to the contractors, learning what the basic stuff, even testing. You know the 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 concrete, figure out and figure out, and also figure out the. I've been testing on that. It was like, that was really eye-opening. Yeah, no, it's totally, it's, it's, yeah, just asking is the best way to learn stuff. And, and just building. Like, yeah, having that experience yeah. means so yeah, much. Building. That line means more than just a line. It actually means how we'll be constructed and how a family will be live in that space. I don't know. When you find yourself at a certain point in your career going like down the radical of like hinges and you can like, I remember sitting with one client. We had been working on her kitchen, and we were meeting with the, the mill worker and then looking at the drawings, which I'd already you know, designed the thing. And he and I went down this rabbit hole about hinge types on this one particular type of cabinet. And should we be using, like, well, we could use this. You know, we could use a standard European hinge, but actually, wouldn't it look kind of cool? What if we used a piano hinge there? Or maybe we should use, like, a, you know, an, or, or a knife hinge. And we started going down this whole, like, rabbit hole about, like, whether or not it, and all of, yeah, what was it? This, this cabinet should have the little extra bling. Should we just have regular butt hinges or maybe we should go with olive knuckle or right. what if we use knife so that it looks good? And she just was like, I've obviously found two people who <laughs> care about this kind of thing. I trust you two are going to like figure this out because I've never had... She's like, I didn't know you could have a conversation about a hinge. So I'm like, oh yeah, we can do this for an hour. But the fun part is for her going through this experience with you guys... And the fact that yes, are so knowledgeable. Imagine at her dinner party, and someone knows that level of detail, and what a great story she's able to share, and how how much fun it's for her to relive that moment. So, and hopefully, she wasn't saying, "Oh my god!" And that I was paying these two people to sit there and talk about hinges. No, most people is all about. Most of homeowner when I gather is they're so proud of the, the experience, and they're so they want to show off their home because home is represent. It's just a representation of who they are. In a in a physical environment, right? That's and, what we aim for, right? And for <laughs> them to be ideal, right? And at the end of the day, we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We all want to be knowledge or accepted. And home is another, you know, renovating a home is another way for a person to collect. I want a new version of me. And how do I showcase that version of me or the best version of me out there to the world? So. Yeah. Well, Catherine, <laughs> if only I lived in a house, that I could pick what I could design. <laughs> that's what happens. Like, you must have such a nice house. I'm like, oh, it's filled with like hand-me-downs and stuff on the side of the street or yard sales. <laughs> My dining room table is a slab of stone from that it was like a refuse and like a remnant in a yard. The thing like, is, you find oh, a way yeah, to no, make no, no, it no. beautiful. Don't look at my house for what I just. <laughs> but as an architect, I can't afford my own designs. <laughs> but as an architect, you find 
unique things about. You can find something ordinary and convert into that extraordinary moment. And that's what's so special. It just everything about what you do, all the details, all the projects I've seen in your mag the magazines, it's just that exquisite level of detail. And we well, that's what I mean. Every single thing, like every line means something and details yeah. are incredibly important. And actually that the one of the things I, I kinda I say, it's you know, when when it works, it looks super easy and it looks right. really effortless and it, it you don't notice a lot of the Oftentimes, the most detailing goes into the things that you don't notice at all because it looks super, super simple. When you notice details is when they screw up. Yep. And that's when you really notice that, like, somebody didn't pay attention. And that's what Steve yeah. Jobs described. That's his, his model to his principle. I mean, you, Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. Right? You have um, to work so okay. hard to <laughs> simplify it and make it look so easy, but it requires so much work to make it simple. Yeah, yeah. And that's it's really easy to, that. to do. Yeah, it's very hard to make things look really easy. Right. I think. And so. I think you've done it. And I'm really proud oh, of what you've done. And to be honest, I can sit here and talk all night. But I also realize I know, that I know, I can sit here and talk all night, too. <laughs> I'll realize you have been starting. It's not like I'm running off to a party or anything like that. <laughs> well, you have many things to do. And I totally, and I'm grateful that you take the time to speak with us. And you certainly inspire me of all these years. And you continue to inspire me even on this call. And I know when other people listen to it, they'll get inspired by you. So how would other people, if they want to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you? Well, can come to our website, which we are currently revamping. Um, our old one is still up and the new one will come up soon, um, which is www.truman-architects.com. There is a link there with a little with an email link, which it says info. It bounces to me. And when we're allowed to walk around back out in the world... <laughs> Our offices in Cambridge. Okay. Um, but yeah, the website's probably the best. Um, all the contact information is on there. And we don't necessarily have a, like a join mailing list or anything like that, but shoot in. I, I do have a marketing email list for email blast. So if you're interested in getting on it, you can just shoot me an email on the website. Um, I do have a uh, woefully lightly maintained Instagram and Facebook page, which one of these days I'll start actually doing more with, but I don't do that much with right now, but they are, I think it's C Truman arc on Instagram, which is actually mostly filled with travel pictures and art and not so much architecture and, uh, Catherine Truman architects on Facebook, which is also slightly woefully underutilized, but it's only because we've been so busy for the past six that's, and a half years. That's I good signs. Time to do it. People are finding so you. Because they make it a little bit more TLC now. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. You truly are an incredible design professional and architect or extraordinary. And also being the thought leader in the industry. And I, like I said, I always respect you and admire you and you continue to shine and I'm really proud and see you continue to grow. Oh, thank you so much. It's so kind. It's been great catching up. We should do this more often. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. It's been a pleasure, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revivify Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Brought to you by Bayrap.